taking a break from Daniel for a couple weeks. We're going to look at the at, at uh, the triumphal entry, and then next Sunday at the resurrection. Uh, we also have a Good Friday service. So I look forward to seeing you there. And um, but uh, let's begin with this story that's called the triumphal entry in Matthew twenty one, and I'm titling the talk today "Own It." <clears throat> Because Jesus acted as if he owned it. He walked, he, drew, he rode into, didn't walk in, rode in on a, on a donkey into Jerusalem as if he owned it. And yet he did it without title, without institutional power or position, and still he rode in on a donkey as if he owned it. Let me ask you a question. Uh, have you ever had someone who came into your workplace that you'd been at for a few years, whether it was your workplace or your school or some social group, they show up and they act as if they've always belonged. They start talking to everybody. They see this, they, they, they dive deep into the knowledge and the history of the, of the organization of the group. They start asking questions and they come to you with such excitement to talk to you about it. And they act as if they already belong and as if they own it. And you may have felt at times a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy, a little bit of, you know, who is this person that dares to act this way? And this, my friends, is very much a part of what the triumphal entry is about. So let's take a look at this. And this is definitely a fresh perspective on the triumphal entry, but it's something that has been on my heart and mind um, for a while as I've been thinking about how I engage my own life. Do I act as if I own it or do I try to earn it and get my way to finally having permission to then be something that I'm not already? And Jesus seems to flip all of that on its head from the beginning. And the Matthew, the writer, is definitely doing that from the beginning right through to the end. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 and let's begin at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem <clears throat> uh, they, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and will send them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter uh, Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? 
The crowds answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches and the selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? He asked him. Jesus replied, have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth praise. And he left them and went out of the city where he spent the night. All right, now it's very visible there towards the end. What Jesus uh, is doing is he's receiving praise from children. And that is creating a problem for the religious leaders who are upset with him because he's taken the praise of children. And the praise of children is that uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that they're praising him as a, a deliverer, as something significant. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's, you know, it's coming from, God has ordained this from the children, from the lips of children. In other words, children sometimes see things that adults don't because they can kind of look past a lot of the, uh, the images, the stuff that we, we intangibly fixate on. Things like prestige. Do children see prestige? Not so much. Do children see institutional power and positions? Not so much. <laughs> you know, what they see is another person. Now, a person that's big and for them is a little scary because they're big, but don't look and they don't see the intangibles of the things that we often pursue. But what they do see as they see something like love and they see something like you are, you care about me and I can see that. And that's what they see and they experience. And so they are blessing Jesus saying, hey, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's creating some jealousy, some envy. Let's begin right at the beginning here. And let's start with, first of all, what were the expectations that people had? The expectations were that Jesus was going to come in and become king. See, him coming in on a donkey is not the, 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 the mode of transportation. Uh, someone who is, want, who is wanting to become king, somebody who is uh, attempting to overthrow Rome, uh, would not come in on a donkey. A donkey was not a mode of transportation for, uh, for the elite, nor was it a mode of transportation for those who were going into warfare. It was a, it was a beast of burden. Uh, a burden of beast, rather, <laughs> and, and it. What they did is these these uh, these uh, donkeys that did carry people. Uh, if people were on them, it was just this was the average person, an average person going about their average daily routines. Nothing to be seen here, and so there's nothing to stand out about what ha what is happening. The expectations were he was going to come in. And even if he did come in on a donkey, which is weird, okay, we'll look past that because we're going to celebrate and praise him, throw palms on, his, uh, on the road in front of him. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, then he's going to do something miraculous and overthrow Rome and become king. He's going to do something, including perhaps even cleanse the temple. That was not un unexpected. But how he did it, that was a little bit unexpected. Right? He comes in peacefully on a donkey and then he turns into a little bit of a violent dude because he starts 
you know, chasing around people with, whip, with a whip and overthrowing tables. And so there is a bit of violence going on. It's a little strange that that would happen. Right. But what he does is uh, the storyteller is starting off with this, this is a man who's coming in. And if you'd miss it, and if you just see the, 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 you know, the, the him com coming in on a, on a donkey, if you just see that part and you just see him uh, coming in and, and, and turning over the tables and you just see him healing and you see them in sections and in parts, but you do not see what is happening as a whole, you're going to miss the larger message here that is underlying all of this. And what is that larger message that is underlying all of this? Well, Matthew, the storyteller, has been saying this right from the beginning. And what he's been saying is that uh, trying to communicate this message that the kingdom of heaven is already present among you, that it is not something that you are to achieve, uh, to try to make happen because it isn't already here. It is a recognition that the kingdom of heaven is already present among you. It is his recognition that he is already all of the things that he needs to be, which is the reason why he does not need the affirmation or does not need someone else confirming that he is king of the Jews, that he is something special, that he has significance. He does not need that from any, any other person. The reason why he comes in on a donkey and acting as if he already owns it, as if he already is who he really is, this is what troubles other people and has consistently throughout the gospel stories, as you can see, over and over again. Who does this man think he is? Notice what happens to you when someone does that. When someone comes in somewhere new, becomes, uh, you know, to, to your social, new social, you know, enters in as a new part of the social group, as a new person in it, or comes into your workplace as a new person and has all this excitement, all this optimism, all this hope, all this faith, and comes in and acts like they already belong, not like they have to earn their way into belonging. And notice what happens to your own heart when that takes place. Sometimes there's a little bit of envy. Sometimes there's a little bit of looking down on that person because they didn't earn their way there. Now, sure. Some people do act in ways that it's like entitled, absolutely. But sometimes it isn't that. It is that they are genuinely excited, hopeful. But it doesn't even matter what their intentions are. Pay attention to your own heart and recognize there are things within us that tell us that we don't deserve, that we have to earn, that we have to work from a place of not having things, of not being what we need to be, and then earn them. And Jesus lives and acts as if he already owns it all and has everything he needs. This is the great reversal of everything that started out as the first story in the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. The origin story begins with the first humans, Adam and Eve. And it begins with this story of their creation and of, of, uh, of God giving everything and completing everything in seven days and everything being perfect and ideal. And then he creates a garden for the first humans. And then he says to them, everything in here is yours. 
do not eat of this one tree of the knowledge of the good, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then comes in the ancient lie. There are two things happening here. There's the ancient truth and the ancient lie. The ancient truth is you have everything you need. The ancient lie is you don't. There's something fundamentally missing. The ancient lie is manifested by the serpent who comes into the garden and says, oh, you're not, you, can't eat of any, you can't eat of the trees of the garden. Notice how he says it. You can't eat of the trees of the garden. And what does Eve do? Eve corrects him, says, no, 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 just the one tree. In other words, I can eat from 99%. I have everything I need in this garden. And then what does Satan do? Oh, no, the, the, you, you, you're missing something fundamentally. You're missing knowledge. And so what does the, 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 the lie become? The lie becomes there's something missing. There's something not quite right. So what do they do? Both of them eat. And then their eyes are opened and they find out that they're naked and they're ashamed. Why is it that your eyes are, their eyes are opened and then they suddenly become aware that they were, which they always were naked, but they were not ashamed and now they are ashamed. Why? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever questioned that? Why is it that by eating of something that was supposed to give them more than what they already had, that they end up feeling even like they have less? Did you ever notice that? Has that ever, did that ever cross your mind when you read Genesis chapter three? It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating that the reversal of, of everything you do, when you pursue the things that you think are gonna give you meaning and in the end, they actually empty you even more than what you already had. That is the experience, my friends, of everything we do when we're pursuing what we're pursuing oftentimes in hopes that it will give us what we want it to give us. It is very much like the person who pursues wealth becomes wealthy and then finds themselves emptier than ever before and no amount of wealth can ever fill that hole. The person that pursues success and no matter how much success they pursue, the person that pursues prestige, the person that pursues power, the person that pursues peace, the person that pursues righteousness, goodness, the person that pursues pleasure, every one of these, when you get there, you find yourself even emptier than ever before because that is the ancient lie. So notice what God says. What does God say when he comes and finds Adam and Eve? It's the question. Question is, why are, where are you? <laughs> we're hiding. Why? Uh, because we were naked and unashamed. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree? that I told you not to eat? So because you believed that you didn't have, you went and pursued and what happened? You had less. Jesus reverses that by acting as if he has already everything, even though he has nothing. Do you see that? Nothing, absolutely nothing. He is poor. He is without position, without power, without prestige. He's without any of the things that we all pursue and yet acts as if he has everything already present and as if he has all access to God, as if God is already present around him, in him, through him, and as if he has access to God right now in this present moment and the religious leaders are bothered 
<laughs> so bothered. The ancient lie versus the ancient truth. This is why the gospel writer of Matthew tells these parables, has, has Jesus saying these parables. Like, the kingdom of heaven is like what? Like a seed. Like a mustard seed. Right? What, what, what's, the, what's the analogy there? The analogy is that of DNA, of a seed. Let me ask you a question. Does a seed, is the seed missing something? Is the seed for an apple tree missing something? Is the acorn missing something to become an oak tree? Is it missing the information, the DNA? It is missing absolutely nothing, and yet it is not fulfilled. It is not complete. It's on its way there, but it isn't missing anything. This is why the analogy of the seed is perfect. These storytellers are not just like randomly picking something. This is really deep, deep mystical truths that last forever, which is why the scriptures still speak to us this day. The seed that has everything it needs already there. The kingdom of heaven has everything it, it's already present. It's already here. And what Jesus is acting as if all of it is here and I have all access to it. He is owning it. What's the famous story that probably is the most famous of all parables? Is the story of the prodigal son. What in the end happens is that the older brother refuses to come into the party that the father has thrown for the prodigal son. And his response is, I have slaved for you all of these years and you never threw a party for me. In other words, I've been trying to earn power, prestige, uh, privilege. I've been trying to earn all of these things and you never gave them to me. It was as if these things were something to be attained, something to be earned. And Jesus says, my son, everything I have is already yours. There is nothing missing. Your younger brother who became the prodigal got it. That's why he gets to celebrate and, and enjoy all of these things. It's because he acts like he owns it. <clears throat> he returns. The party is thrown, and he welcomes it. Even though he came back with the same similar terms, like, I'll earn my way back. And the father says, no, 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 no. We're going to throw a robe on you. We're going to throw a party for you. And so this is the reason why it makes a whole lot of sense when we move towards the next part, which is that Jesus overthrows the table of the money changers. What happens when we do not believe that we have everything right in this moment, that all of it is just being awakened within us, just like the DNA of, uh, you know, of, uh, the, 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 the DNA that we all possess in its, in its form, it has all of the necessary elements and it becomes turned on as we grow and develop and different parts um, of us are formed. Right, from from uh, uh, from early on, from conception to this point, and all of these things are being awakened within us. 
But what happens when we don't believe that that's true? What happens when we believe that there is something that we do not possess, that we do not have, that we need to get? Well, philosophers have written about this. Philosophers who've studied the scriptures have read about this, have written about this, and they've said, you know, there's this whole thing that if you look at cultures and societies, there's this whole thing of there's competition that begins to emerge. When you see that somebody else has something you don't have, there's an ugly form of competition, not the good kind, the ugly form. There's a comparison that takes place first. Talk about the C's. There's a bunch of C's here, but it's the comparison. I don't have what you have. Look at social media. I don't have what you have. You have something better. Your life looks better than mine. There's a comparison that takes place. And then it turns ugly. And it turns into an ugly form of competition. And one philosopher ends with, and then it turns into crucifying. Eventually, there's a crucifixion of some sort. Something, Something has to be killed off. And this is what happens here with these these people that were selling. This is the crazy thing. They were selling doves, pigeons. They were selling animals for sacrifice. This was supposed to be a, a moment, a holy moment, a moment where all people had access to the divine. All people had access to God. And they were coming in from all over uh, the area, from many miles away, to travel on foot, to get to this place, to finally connect with God. And they're coming in, and these money changers, these people that worked at the tables, were actually charging exorbitant rates because they knew they could. You had no choice when you came in. And they had turned something that was supposed to be about access for all people into a den of thieves. What happens when we don't recognize that we are already rich, that we have everything we need, is that we begin to then eventually go down the path of taking, taking from others. You know how it shows up much of the time? It doesn't show up as, as maybe evil or corrupt as actually taking from something, from someone, like physically taking something. But it comes in the form of words on social media, words about each other, about other people. Just a slight negative word made, a slight negative comment made about someone else. And if we were to look within our hearts, what we would find is that there is some kind of envy, some kind of hate, some kind of dislike, some kind of desire to lift ourselves up by just knocking somebody down a little bit. You know what that is? That's thievery. Because what we're doing is we're taking someone else's glory in order to try to add to ours. Are you with me? When we speak about somebody in a way that drops them down a tiny little bit, it is an attempt to take their glory to add to ours. A friend of mine used to say, it is like trying to snuff out another's candle in order to light yours. It never works. And that's what it is when we're driven by the belief that we have, that we need to have something. We need to hold on to something. We need to acquire. There's something 
missing, something wrong, something off, something that is out there that I have to obtain. Right. And that's why it finishes with the blind and the lame and the children. The blind and the lame, sure, come on in. We welcome you because we already have everything we need. We are not worried about you taking from us. We are not worried about you being a drain on our resources. We welcome you. And so we begin. We begin with the truth, the ancient truth, that God has given us a garden, and it is filled with so much. And that God himself comes in the cool of the day, as the narrator of Genesis says, that the, 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 the divine comes in by spirit and begins to walk with us in the garden, is already present. There is absolutely nothing missing in your life right now. Now, does that mean you have everything? You have everything. You, everything is ideal and everything is perfect. And everything. No, it doesn't mean that but it means that everything that you need, you already have present within you and it is becoming awakened within you, just like DNA, just like a seed. And it's becoming more and more beautiful. And the faith that we have in that way creates a different way of living. It is not a living for the Sabbath. It is a living from the Sabbath. Did you ever notice that in the Old Testament, everybody is working towards the Sabbath? It's six days of work. And what happens on the seventh day, folks? The rest right? That's when you rest. What happens in the New Testament? There's a flipping. Sunday is the first day, and we work from Sunday to the rest of the week. You're working from rest rather than for rest. When Jesus begins his ministry, before he's done a single thing, what happens at the baptism? God says to him, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Before he has done anything, he already has everything, the approval of the Father. This, my friends, is the reversal of the ancient lie to believing the ancient truth and living as if we own it. Can you feel that within your within you? I mean, I, I I like for this to become something like you actually begin to feel the quality of this thing called eternal life. It's what it is. That's why it's called eternal life, because it's this place of eternity, this quality of existence that happens deep within us already, before it becomes a manifested reality in the physical. And so with that, I would like to invite us to consider this week as a week and an opportunity for us to practice some of this truth. Think about the uh, things that maybe you're doing from day to day that are part of the way you go about meeting particular needs. And if you think about this, and it will require some self-reflection. That's what scripture invites us to is self-reflection. So in what way perhaps are we living regularly that 
is an attempt to trying to get something into us that isn't already there. So let me throw out some examples. Some of you, you might be eager to serve other people because that's what you do really well in hopes of getting something internally met. Some of you, it might be, you know, I'm trying to be strong enough in order to feel okay in this world. Some of you, it might be, I'm trying to pursue pleasure. Some it might be peace. It's, it's all sorts of things that we're trying to keep or trying to attain. And this week, maybe, see if you can act in a way that is you already have it all. You already have it. And so that's the spirit of fasting. Consider that this week. What can I deliberately fast from? Not a ton, not like I'm going to go, you know, fast the entire week or whatever you want, you can, but it's fasting something as a way to prove to yourself the truth that you already have everything, that God is already here, right? Love that passage where in Deuteronomy, again, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament, God says, I led you into the desert, Israel, so that you would become hungry, so that you would understand that man does not live by bread alone. Because you're, all your pursuits is in this way. And to, I want you to discover that you already have everything right now. That man can live by the eternal truth of God's word that is present within us. So consider that for this week. Um, I have mine. <laughs> um, and I'll be working on mine. Um, I invite you to work on yours as well.